Good morning. Thank you for that introduction, uh, Pastor Dave. I know we just prayed, but I'm going to ask you to pray with me once more as we uh, jump into our time together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of worshiping on this Lord's Day with your saints. I thank you that here in the heart of the Arabian Peninsula, there are local churches like Redeemer Dubai who testify to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to you, and that includes every inch of the Middle East. O Holy Trinity, as we continue to worship now by submitting under your proclaimed word, I pray that you use our worship to spread the fragrance of Christ in this region. And may such a fragrance permeate our whole lives in every sphere. Lord Jesus, this is your church. And so I ask you now to build it according to your will. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see Christ's worth and sanctify our worship. Draw husbands and wives, single and widowed and divorced, grandparents and parents and children represented here in this body to yourself. Lord, would you comfort those who are afflicted in this congregation? Would you humble the prideful? Would you exalt the humble and humiliated? Would you give strength to the weak and wisdom to those who are in need of it? Lord, no mere sermon can meet all of the various needs represented in this place this morning, but you can do that, O Holy Spirit, with your word. And so I ask that you would. So would you take the labors that have gone into this sermon and use my words to address our needs and to stir our affections for Christ? Let the seed of your word now sown in my weakness be raised in your power. O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, good morning. I do bring you greetings from the Evangelical Community Church of Abu Dhabi, where my wife and I are members, and out of which, as Pastor Dave said, I serve as the professor of theology at GTS, um, which again exists in no small part because of this congregation. And so for that, I am incredibly grateful, and I count it an extreme privilege to minister uh, with you, to, to partner with you to magnify the name of Jesus here in this region. Again, we're in Psalm 24 this morning, so if you haven't, go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, and I'll say a few words about this psalm and this sermon in general before we dive in. Um, this, this psalm is a sort of call to praise. It is a call to worship. David, its author, considers the Lord his God to be altogether worthy of his and our utmost worship and devotion. And so he pens this marvelous psalm to sort of sweep us up, as it were, into his call to worship. He sort of pulls us in from the very beginning so that by the end of this psalm, we are left where David is, which is eager to worship God. Ultimately, this psalm will make plain for us that the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of heaven and earth, and that He deserves our unreserved allegiance and adoration, not only because He is the Lord God over all, but also because He has graciously come to us in our weaknesses to 
bring us up into his heavenly presence. And so kids, if there are any kids here today, I can just summarize the the sermon this way. When you're with your parents afterwards and they ask you, okay, were you paying attention to Dr. Sam and his sermon? What was the sermon about? This is what you say, kids. Are you ready? You say, Jesus is the king of all and he wants us to be in his kingdom. Simple enough, right? Jesus is what? The king of all and he wants us to be in his kingdom. There you go. You have it. That's a sermon. I can just close up and and walk away. This psalm shows us all of this in three distinct and interrelated movements. So that's going to be our three points uh, this morning. The three movements of this psalm. We begin with that first movement, which is that God is the sovereign creator. Look with me again at verse 1 of Psalm 24. These are the words of God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The universe has a master. This earth does not simply happen to exist, and we don't simply happen to find ourselves here. Nothing here exists on its own. Nothing exists that exists independently of the sovereign, creative craftsmanship and sustaining grace of its God. God alone exists independently, and everyone else exists by derivation. It is contingent. He alone is essential. We alone are accidental. Not in the sense that we're an accident, but in the sense that the universe would just keep on going whether or not you and I are here. We're not necessary. (laughs) Our existence is gifted to us. We live and move and have our being in God, but He does not live and move and have His being in us. We are conditioned by Him, but He is not conditioned by us. And this means that whatever the distance there is between anything in this whole realm of creation from us, it doesn't even begin to distance the distance between God and everything else. He alone is owner in an ultimate sense. I love how the Puritan pastor John Owen puts this. He says, What is an angel more than a worm? A worm is a creature, and an angel is no more. He hath made one to creep on the earth, made also the other to dwell in heaven. There is still a portion between these. They agree in something. But what are all the nothings of the world? To the God of infinite, to the God infinitely blessed forevermore. In other words, as lofty a creature as an angel is, which is pretty lofty, lofty enough to terrify anyone who sees an angel in the scriptures, it still is infinitely closer in its being to a worm than God because it is a creature. Compared to God, worms and angels are nothings. Or nothings. What are all the nothings in the world compared to God? Angels and worms are all part of the fullness that belongs to God. All of, it, all of it belongs to God. From seraphim to insects, from shakes to slaves, from mountains to hillsides, from galaxies to bacteria. All of that fits within this category of 
fullness. And think about that word, fullness. The fullness thereof belongs to God. That word is exhaustive. It means that every bit of wisdom that has ever been discovered in human history is the Lord's. Every bit of wealth ever accrued is the Lord's. Every bit of joy ever experienced is the Lord's. Every bit of food or drink ever consumed, music heard, or equations solved exists within the parameters of his fullness, of this fullness that does not belong to itself. The fullness doesn't belong to itself. It belongs to the Lord. Now, doesn't this whet our appetite for discovery? Doesn't this make us thirsty to seek and find the treasures of the earth that belong to the Lord's? Because, friends, when the earth and the fullness thereof belongs not to the impersonal domain of chance, but to, rather to the Lord, then that means that our search in this world for truth and goodness and beauty is not a waste of time. It is given a profound justification. We look for truth and goodness and beauty out in the world with the confidence that we will find it. Because out in the world, all of it belongs to the Lord, who is true and good and beautiful. And the earth is His fullness that belongs to Him. Further, this fact, the fact of the earth belonging to the Lord, the earth in its fullness belonging to the Lord, this fact ought to fill us with a profound sense of gratitude. For if the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, what do we have that we haven't received? Nothing. Everything that we have, we have received because it all belongs to Him. All we do is receive, receive, receive. And our great benefactor gives and gives and gives. We are purely and exhaustively receivers. Can't you see why David begins his call to worship here and this way? Everything belongs to God, he is saying. You included. He has made you and you belong to him. And the implication, of course, is this, that we owe him our very being. We who owe him our very being also owe him our worship. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to him and we owe him our worship. And kids, again, if I could summarize this point for you, it would be this way. Since God has made everything for his glory, including you and me, we should glorify him. If God has made everything for his glory, we should glorify him. And this brings us to the psalm's second movement. We should be asking the question then, who is fit to come before him and worship? And that's what we learn about in this second movement. Look at, with me again at verse Three, David says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. David poses this question in light of how glorious this God is, who will, who will ascend his hill and stand before him in his holy presence? Now, we would not be wrong to think that David is intentionally using temple 
worship language here, right? Ascending this hill, coming into the temple, uh, into the presence of God. And in a very real sense, that is what he's saying. He's saying, who will enter into the holy place of God, into his temple to worship before him? But we should keep our biblical chronology in view as well, right? And this is what we learn if we go through foundations course. There's another little preview for you. When was the temple built? Well, it wasn't built by David. So David is saying, let's ascend up into the hill of the Lord. Let's ascend into the temple to worship the Lord in his holy presence. But the temple doesn't yet exist. Right? He's begun the preparation for the temple. We just read about that in our call to worship from uh, 1 Chronicles 29. He's begun the preparation of building the temple, but it's his son who will actually build the temple, Solomon. So the temple doesn't yet exist, which means regardless of what David may be referring to at the most immediate and tangible level, David is asking a question that transcends temporal worship practices. He's asking a question regarding who can stand to worship God in the actual presence of the almighty creator of heaven and earth. He's asking an ultimate question about worship. And if we think soberly, such a question is enough to make our knees tremble, isn't it? Right? Far be it for us to sort of casually volunteer to strut into the holy presence of the Lord. This is no mere manager. This is no mere governor we are talking about. It is the almighty over everything that David asks his question about. And David answers his own question in verse 4. But his answer, of course, offers little reassurance to the one who's self-conscious, right? Look with me at verse 4. He says, he who has clean hands... And a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Now, we have to remember that David at least has his own immediate historic context in view. Which means that he intends for this verse to motivate his own generation to seek the face of the God of Jacob. He's saying, don't swear deceitfully. Cleanse your hands. Purify your hearts. Don't lift up your soul to what is false because God is not mocked. And the high and holy one will not tolerate high-handed hypocrisy. So worship him with a clean, clean hands and a pure heart. Seek his face. Come into his presence and worship him sincerely and wholeheartedly. And yet at the deepest heart level, who among us can be so presumptuous to say, here am I, my heart is clean, my hands are, are clean, my heart is pure. Right? This verse is disturbing to the man left to his own devices. And for us Christians, this word is especially difficult for those of us who live at this point in redemptive history because uh, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which heightens the stakes of these kinds of claims, right? Where Christ has reminded us that having a pure heart and having clean hands is much more than, for example, refraining from adultery or committing murder. It means in part refraining from lust and refraining from hating our neighbors, 
In other words, we know from Christ that the purity of heart that David speaks of here that qualifies the person to come into the presence of God to worship Him is not just obedience to the letter of the law, but rather living righteously at the secret level of the heart. Now, if this is the one who may enter into the Lord's holy place, must we not end in utter despair that anyone will ever enter in? The effect of this verse reminds me of that moment that John experiences in the book of Revelation in chapter 5. It's as if we're there with him. We've heard a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And if we've seen that, quote, no one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. And so we, like John, feel a sense of despair. Who will ever be good enough to enter into his presence? Now, of course, I'm sure if you've spent any time here at Redeemer, you're well acquainted with the deeply Christian impulse to search for Christ at this point in the sermon, right? Whenever you get to a point where you feel despair creeping over, there's an impulse. Where's Jesus? And that impulse is to be trusted here in this sermon. This impulse helps us, in fact, to explain what appears to be a shift of focus in this psalm. So look at verse 7 with this psalm's third and final movement. Verse 7 seems to change the subject. It says, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. What's described here is a kind of royal reception. Having asked and answered the question of who may ascend the hill of the Lord to stand in his holy place, To our great astonishment, it's as if we hear the trumpet blast and the cranking of the giant cogs as the gates of heaven slowly open up to welcome the arrival of someone. And we're surprised because we thought surely no one will enter in. No one has a clean hand and a pure heart and does not ever lift up his heart to what is deceitful. And yet here we are. The gates are opening up to welcome Someone who apparently meets this standard. Who must meet this description. And who is this? Who is this one who has clean hands and a pure heart? And David tells us, the Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now those capital letters in your Bible, L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, that is the translator's clue, he's, it's, it's the translator's hint for you that they are describing the God of Israel's covenant name, Yahweh, the personal covenantal name of God that God gave to his chosen people. So who may ascend the hill of Yahweh? Yahweh himself. The Lord, having apparently descended, now ascends his own hill to stand in his own holy place. Of course, this is Jesus himself. Now, are we justified by the text 
to draw such conclusion, con- conclusions. I know that that's a, that's a homiletical, that's a preacher's, you know, sort of a typical gospel-centered, Jesus-centered kind of preaching uh, move to say, okay, this text is talking about Jesus. The question is, does the text actually itself justify such a reading? Or is this just another example of a theologian trying to squeeze Christ into every text? Well, I think this psalm itself justifies this Christ-centered reading for three reasons. First, first reason, I skipped over it before, but notice verse 5 when David says this, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Did you catch that? David's hope is that he will receive a blessing from Yahweh. And what is this blessing that comes from Yahweh, from the God of his salvation? Righteousness. Friends, David, David is looking by faith for God to provide a righteousness for him that will fit him to ascend the hill of God. He's looking for a righteousness to be provided not by his own hands, but from God himself, the God of his salvation. This is what Paul tells us about in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, when he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. David is here part of the law and the prophets bearing witness to a righteousness that does not come from himself, and does not come from the law. It is a righteousness that comes rather from the God of his salvation, a righteousness that will eventually be earned by Jesus Christ himself with his perfect life, his perfect obedience to the law. David, by faith, is therefore included in that number that Paul goes on to describe in the same chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 3, when he says, in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, former sins like David's. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, that is, now that Christ has come, so that he might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. David's entire hope in this psalm is to receive a righteousness from God. He didn't know, he didn't know, David didn't know exactly how he would get it from Yahweh, but he knew that Yahweh would provide it somehow. He looked by faith to the God of his salvation to receive righteousness. We know how this righteousness was received and ultimately imputed to David the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that's the first clue. That's the first clue that we're right to see Christ as the fulfillment of this song, the righteousness that comes from God. That's a righteousness that's earned by Christ and Christ alone. Second reason I think this psalm is talking about Jesus. Consider the placement of these two movements that preceded the movement that we're just in, this whole text as a whole. David extols the glory of Yahweh, the creator of the world. That's the first movement. And then he asks the question, okay, since God is that glorious, who will ascend into his holy hill? Who will ascend the hill of Yahweh? And then immediately after that, he goes on to describe Yahweh coming into the presence of Yahweh, coming into, up the hill, holy hill, into the presence of Yahweh himself. 
So the fact that David envisions the royal procession of Yahweh as the king entering into those ancient gates immediately after posing the question of who will ascend the hill of the Lord shows us that David himself knew. David himself knew that ultimate worship of God would somehow be facilitated by God himself. Again, he didn't know all the details, but he knew that God would facilitate ultimate worship of God himself. God would fit and sanctify our worship somehow. God would fit us for worship, and he would do so by meeting the qualifications himself. He would provide the pure heart and the clean hands. But third and finally, this is the last reason why I think this psalm is explicitly talking about Jesus. Consider this psalm in relation to the two psalms that came before it. Both of them are very famous. Psalm 22 is the psalm that has the cry of dereliction that Jesus quotes when he's on the cross, right? When he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? We're all very familiar with that verse. And this cry is often misunderstood when people take it to mean that somehow, you know, the, the persons of the Trinity are, are sort of disrupted. They're at odds with one another at the crucifixion, as if the first person of the Trinity, the Father, had somehow abandoned the second person of the Trinity or some, something like that. Now, I think that way of reading this text uh, the, the Psalm 22 is theologically problematic uh, because it, it, it sort of imagines that the Trinity is somehow a society of different wills that can be at odds with one another, different emotional centers that can be at odds with one another. And most of the time, we're, we're tempted to misunderstand the text that way because we've misunderstood the nature of the Son's incarnation, the purpose of His human nature, His assumption of a human nature. So if we could just summarize that Psalm 22, that's not the divine nature of the Son suffering on the cross. That is a nature capable of suffering, suffering on the cross. It's his human nature. He's suffering as a human on the cross, and he's doing that for us. So the suffering that he's experiencing, he's, he's, he's experiencing with a nature like ours, a nature capable of suffering. So why then does he quote from Psalm 22? If it's not because he is, you know, in the divine nature itself sort of at odds with the Father and the Holy Spirit, why then would he quote Psalm 22? And here's the answer. He is identifying himself as the true suffering Davidic king. David had this kind of cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quotes his words to show that he is the fullest fulfillment of the Davidic king. This cry of dereliction from the cross is a deeply profound claim to royalty. David's kingly suffering was merely a shadow of the substance that is Christ's kingly suffering. Okay, so if that's the case for Psalm 22, what about Psalm 23? In Psalm 22, David is crying out uh, in the dark night of his soul. Christ is crying out in the dark night of his soul with his enemies surrounding him. But in Psalm 23, he walks through the valley of the shadow of death. And yet he knows 
that he shall dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. So think with me. If Psalm 22 points to Good Friday, what does Psalm 23 point to if not Holy Saturday? When the body of Christ lay in the grave and he went into the grave, the dead. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 16 says that God will not abandon the soul of Christ to the grave. So, on the cross, Jesus identifies Psalm 22 with Holy Week and sets in motion this sort of David drama, this Davidic drama that takes him through the valley of the shadow of death. Psalm 22 is Good Friday. He's on the cross. Psalm 23 is Holy Saturday. He's in the grave And where does Psalm 24 leave him? Ascending the hill of the Lord. This is Easter. This is the resurrection and the ascension. This is Christ's coronation, right? This is Jesus, after all, who says, as the resurrected one, right before he's ascended, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Well, my friends, do not mute your ears to the glorious Trinitarian music that rings from this psalm. The Lord who owns the earth and the fullness thereof requires for those who ascend his hill to stand in his holy place to have clean hands and a pure heart. That's what he requires. And knowing our inability to have clean hands and pure hearts ourselves, he came to us to be our champion. He is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. He is the eternal Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was incarnate and bore our humanity with clean hands and a pure heart. Therefore, He ascends the hill of the Lord, and He is welcomed as a conquering king, having vanquished sin and Satan and death, having snatched the keys to, the, to death and Hades, having disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame and his glorious death and resurrection by taking the record of debt that stands against us with its legal demands and nailing it to the cross, setting it aside, having achieved the righteousness that, that, uh, for, for David that, to which David longed for, having done all of that, He ascends bodily to receive his coronation as the God-man Davidic king over all. And friends, by virtue of our union with him, we enter in as well. He acts and speaks on our behalf. That's the whole reason why he took on a, a human nature like us. So that he could take us in himself where we could never go on our own. In him, our hearts are purified and our hands are clean. So let us receive the consolation that John felt when he despaired of hope that anyone would ever take the scroll of this revelation. Right? Remember when the, the, the angel spoke to him in Revelation 5 and he says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. Jesus Christ, the resurrected and ascended Savior. He is the king of glory. Behold then, 
brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is high, the one who owns the earth and its fullness becomes low to be for us the one with clean hands. He came to us to bring us to God. He is clean for us. He was tempted in every way as we are, and yet he was without sin. He was spotless on our behalf with clean hands and a pure heart. And in all of this, not only was he assuring that his atoning sacrifice for our sins would be sufficient by its spotlessness, he was also earning the righteousness that would be imputed to us who receive it by faith. With his sacrificial death for us, we are declared not guilty. And with his perfect and spotless merit-earning life for us, we are declared righteous. And brothers and sisters, our reception of this cleanness of hands, of this purity of heart, does not come to us impersonally. It comes to us by union. We who have received Christ by faith have been united to him such that his life counts for ours and his death counts for ours. His resurrection counts for ours and his ascension counts for ours. And this is how it's possible for Paul to say that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We're seated with him in heaven because, as Paul says to the Colossians, our life is hidden with Christ in God, who is our, our life is hidden with, with Christ in God and Christ is in heaven. And so in Christ, we have ascended the hill of the Lord. In Christ, we now stand in his holy presence and we can answer the affirmative. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? We can say, in Christ, us. We will ascend the hill of the Lord. We will stand in his holy presence to worship. This is the glorious reality that the author of Hebrews positively revels in. In Hebrews 10, when he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And friends, far be it for us, for us to use such sweeping promises as a pretense for sin. I got a clean heart, pure hands, guess I can do whatever I want, right? By no means. That's what Paul says, right? He says this to the Romans. What then? Shall we sin so that grace may abound? By no means. For how can we who have died to sin still live in it? So we could say from Psalm 24, what then? Should we indulge our hearts and hands in filth since Christ has ascended the heavenly hill for us? By no means. How can we who have ascended the hill with Christ still still live as if we're in the valley with the muck and mire of sin? Friends, to use Christ's perfection as a pretense for indulging in sin is to think like someone who has not even become acquainted with grace. We are free, but we're free not to sin. We're free from sin, from the bondage of sin. Therefore, take heart and let your positional cleanness in Christ motivate your progressive cleanness now. 
Understand this, Christian, that the truest and most essential version of yourself is not the version that you look at in the mirror when you are frustrated the most at yourself. The truest version of yourself is the one in glory, the one that is perfectly worshiping God with clean hands and a pure heart. Therefore, let us live like it. Let us live as if that is the truest version of ourselves. Let us live as if heaven were our true home and the face of the God of Jacob were our truest delight. Oh, brothers and sisters, Christ's coronation as our king who has secured our place in his kingdom with clean hands and with his pure heart means that your faithful striving for godliness right now is not in vain. It's, an out, its outcome is secure. So seek the purity in Christ that is rightfully yours, not on your own merits, but on Christ's. Seek, dear brothers and sisters, the face of the God of Jacob, because in Christ that future is secure. Now let me end for anyone who is not yet trusted in Christ, who happens to be visiting with us this morning. If you have not come to receive clean hands and a pure heart in Christ, if you haven't come to him to receive the forgiveness of your sins and the righteousness that he offers, then I'd like to sincerely offer that to you right now. Friends, you need to know that you do not belong to yourself. You don't own yourself. Your future doesn't belong to you. You belong to God. You are a creature among other creatures. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, and that includes you. And that means, friends, that means that you owe him your thanksgiving and your worship. Now, if that's true, and it is, then it means that there is no neutrality when worship of this God is concerned. You either worship him rightly, that is in in his presence with clean hands and a pure heart, which is to say through the person of Jesus Christ alone, you either worship him that way in Christ or you are an obstinate creature, rebelliously refusing to worship the God to whom belongs your unwavering devotion. You owe him your worship and you're not giving it to him. Now don't be fooled, friends. God is not mocked. Don't think that just because you've lived this long without experiencing the overwhelming wrath of God means that you will evade such a fate forever. That's not what that means. Don't presume upon the kindness of God. He is being patient with you, but his kind patience is intended to lead you to repentance. So friends, as soon as you become convinced of these two realities, the first two realities of this psalm, As soon as you are convinced that on the one hand, you belong to God and thus he deserves your unwavering devotion and worship, and then on the other hand, that you lack the purity of heart and therefore deserve God's unyielding wrath, as soon as you become convinced of both of those realities, the gospel becomes dazzlingly brilliant. Because the gospel is the good news that God did not leave you in such a desperate condition. That's how. That's how it's, it's such good news, right? You owe him your worship, and you can't give it 
because of the impurity of your heart. And so you deserve his wrath. And in that dilemma, the gospel is such glorious news because he didn't leave you in that hopeless situation demanding for you to come into his presence to worship him with the pure heart and clean hands, knowing that you could never meet those prerequisites. No, friends. Rather, the Son of God, without ceasing to be God, became a man for you. He became a man for you. He took upon himself a nature like yours, a nature that could represent you, a nature that you could cling to by faith, a human nature. And he endured the cross on Good Friday, And he descended to the grave on Holy Saturday, and he rose from the grave on Easter Sunday and is now ascended into the heavens with clean hands and a pure heart. He has ascended the hill of the Lord, and he invites you to participate in him with that whole journey. Come to him so you can die in him, be buried in him, be resurrected in him, and ascended in him. He has made a way for you to stand before God, forgiven and righteous, to worship without shame or fear. So don't delay. Come to him and receive Christ by faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming to us in our lowliness to bring us into your glorious presence. Lord Jesus, you are the king of all and you are the great shepherd of your sheep. So I ask that you comfort your flock now. Please draw any lost sheep this morning that happen to be here with us into your fold. Build up your church in the way that you see fit.